Welcome to the Outer Circle Inner Stillness, conversations and reflections on the intersection of spirituality and sobriety and the way of life that is both, because oftentimes these two disciplines incorporate many of the same tools and same features, and we like to talk about that. So on the table today is a question around technology and sobriety. So when a person is recovering from alcohol abuse, we generally advise them to avoid the beer and wine aisles on the markets. Mm -hmm. When a person is recovering from cocaine or meth use and other drugs, we generally advise them to avoid that one street corner or back alley or a few blocks of downtown. When a person is in recovery from problem gambling, we'd say it's wise for them to avoid casinos. But so then if this pattern holds, then we should say, so if a person's in recovery from problematic pornography use, they should avoid the internet. At which point a bunch of people may say, well, we'd rather like gouge out our own eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, so this is a challenge that shows up for sure in some younger folks. I don't think it's contained to them, but it, there's a particular mm-hmm. way in millennials, Gen Z, tech natives, people who have never known a world without the internet, the internet, yeah. that, uh, this is a challenge and yeah. that is our puzzle for today. So, yeah. uh, with that, I'd love to introduce my guest to you today, Saka Barbarian uh, from Colorado. Hello. Hey. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being yeah. here. Uh, would you care to introduce yourself a little bit and what's your corner of the recovery world, the counseling world? Sure. Some cool. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, as Reese just mentioned, I live just outside of Boulder, Colorado. For those of you who are familiar with the area, it's where the University of Colorado is. Um, small kind of yuppie, hippie town, um, probably similar to like, not dissimilar to like Berkeley, California, a little bit minus there's no ocean here, right? Uh, yeah, and I'm a licensed social worker, a licensed addictions counselor and uh, also a certified sex addiction therapist. In other words, sex addiction. And if maybe you've listened to the show and um, you've um, maybe are have some level of familiarity, that is um, that term kind of throws people off sometimes. But that's inclusive of you know pornography addiction, sexual compulsivity, problematic sexual behavior for some, um, love addiction for others. Sometimes there's nothing to do with what people picture or imagine as sex, right? So we treat and address a lot of those issues, and um, yeah. But, so, wait, but, but but which is separate than treating people convicted of sex offenses, correct? Which I want to put out there because I think I recently got confused with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, the the sex addiction label encompasses a lot, but not quite yes. everything. <laughs> totally. Yep. Yep. Uh, thank you for that clarification. It's a good point, and I, I, I guess sometimes from being inside the field, we don't always know what people are thinking outside of it right so it's good to have that perspective from people being like hey like asking questions right um just in the same way that you know someone treating an alcohol and drug counselor specialist is not necessarily they're not an expert at treating the behavior surrounding uh drug trafficking right like that's a different kind of um it's its own thing it's its own beast right so um i work uh at an organization called begin again institute uh begin again institute is in based in boulder colorado it's a, a program that um offers two-week intensives for male identified clients 
dealing with intimacy disorders. That's kind of the umbrella term for sex, love, pornography, and uh, relationship addiction. So intimacy disorders. Uh, we also offer other uh, individualized programming, and we have a two-week program for those who would like to have a more gospel-focused that's for the largely for uh, individuals from within the Christian community who seek that out. I don't work within that program. Some of my coworkers do, but I'm one of the primary therapists in that program. I also have a small private practice, roughly about two days a week. And so uh, that and have a background in, uh, it came from substance and mental health uh, as my, my main kind of uh, where I cut my teeth in the field and was in that kind of setting for about five years. So uh, the intersection between all of it is something that I enjoy working with. And just like Reese was talking about, it allows us to see the similarities and differences between how we treat these kind of behavioral challenges versus substance challenges. And we'll talk a lot more about that and some of the unique um, difficulties facing those who are um, living in the 21st century and trying to navigate this stuff while also being you know, taking part in life, not becoming some kind of like Luddite who's hiding out in a cave and trying to be like, hey, I'm going to be sober, but I'm not really going to do anything else either. Right. So, yeah. Right. Because sobriety is not just about not doing this one thing. That's uh, right. But it, it is really a way, it, it's a way of life. It's a way of living. And mm -hmm. if you take away all manner of living, uh, have we really succeeded? Have we really succeeded? So absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think that's well put. Yes. Uh, I'm really excited. I, um, I, I enjoy hearing about your background. Uh, we have some shared features. I mean, I also cut my teeth in like the drug and alcohol world. And then, uh, one of my first, uh, full-time jobs was doing dual diagnosis counseling. So, mm -hmm. uh, it's so the crossing the bar, the crossing the gap between mental health and addiction. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's been really fun. Yeah. Um, what would you say is one of your favorite things about the work that you do? One of my favorite things about the work I do, I, well, I, maybe I'm going to cheat and give a couple of different answers. One of them is I really enjoy the kind of people I work with, right? Uh, people in the field, compulsivity, addiction uh, tends to draw um, a certain type of person. Usually people don't like passively end up in the field of addiction work. Usually, often they're people of, passion, who sometimes have a connection to it within their family, within their personal history, or sometimes they don't have a personal connection from a, they have an experience that like, you know, there are a few people who have not been affected by the illness of addiction somewhere within their lives. And uh, for those who've dealt with it, they often, you know, who, who experience addiction or have been in recovery from it, it's pretty intense. The the it's a it's a pretty intense and challenging issue. Anyone who's tried to stop can see the level of momentum behind it, and uh, and so it requires a certain level of intensity out of the people who are in the work. So I really have liked uh, interacting with those folks, working alongside those folks, uh, people who really have their heart in the work, oftentimes, and. Uh, um, I think that creates um, not just special conversations, but it creates a really meaningful workplace. So that's one of the things I've really um, enjoyed. And then the second answer when I'm cheating is, is there something in particular about, um, you know, intimacy disorders or process addictions? When we talk about process addictions, maybe some of your listeners or viewers know those are the behavioral addictions, so the non-substance addictions. 
there's something about process addictions. Often process addictions, like if someone has a substance addiction, you'll see it like underneath it. It's, it's often like the substance was like the top layer. In order to address a process addiction, like eating disorders, like you know food addiction, let's say, or it could be a gambling addiction, sex addiction, one is kind of a little bit forced to go a little bit to what I call it, you know, the basement of the soul. You got to go all the way down and look at almost everything. And that is hard work. I get that's like really, and it could be daunting work for some. And people don't have to do it all at once. And they have support available out there. And that's key. But that kind of like touching on this issue results in us touching on really everything, almost everything. is one of the coolest parts of the work is that there's almost no area that you don't end up visiting as a result of touching on this work. Yeah. Doing this, you have, one has to look at relationships. One has to look at their health, their physical health, their nutrition, their spirituality. When you look at spirituality, it's like, what does that mean for me? Right? One has to often look at their hurts from their past, things like trauma or like wounds they're carrying. That results in them looking at their family history, their ancestry, and that can bring up stuff around. I know that you're big into, uh, we've talked about uh, the importance of uh, tradition. And uh, so, so there's almost nothing that you know, no stone is often left unturned in addressing this kind of issue. So that's, that's kind of cool for me. Yeah. yeah. I I'm, I'm resonating with that really deeply as, um, the, like the sex addiction field, it very quickly becomes the most holistic approach of any modality that, that I've encountered. Uh, because you're right, like, you know, sex addiction is, or intimate disorders are usually accompanied by some sort of substance thing. It's, it's often there. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, there's these other process things going on. There's just about always trauma and there's, and it always brings in family stuff, current family, family of origin. And yeah, you get into like the basement of the soul you're getting that. Well, we, when we talk about like first order and second order change, you know, first order change like, is like changing the behavior. Uh, mm-hmm. Second order change is really addressing well, what are the reasons that behavior existed in the first place? So getting into like the root of like, who are you as a person? And yeah. that gets me excited because at that point, it's very much mirroring, well, what is the trajectory of spiritual growth? And yeah. um, like any, any sort of you know spiritual growth process, it is it's also, uh, if it's a good one, if it's not just a moralistic, uh, legalistic thing, it's very much a, a whole person transformative uh, experience that takes Absolutely. place throughout your whole life. So yes, that, that gets me very excited. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's a fun story. So, so we met, uh, recently at the, uh, ITAP symposium. That's an acronym. That's the international Institute of trauma and addiction professionals. They're cool people. And mm-hmm. we, uh, so we, so we met in Phoenix and, uh, one of the things that gave birth to this conversation was a, a workshop you did on, um, uh, sobriety challenges facing, uh, the Gen Z millennial, uh, tech native, uh, populations, mm-hmm. uh, centering on this question of like, okay, so what do we do with the internet? So this, so there's a challenge. Uh, what are some other things you'd add to saying what that challenge is? And, um, I mean, not necessarily like, you know, recreate your whole workshop right here. Right sure. Now. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, what, what is important to say about that? Yeah, it was. And I enjoyed the both the conference and I mean, something that some people might not know, right, is that the conference prior to this, you know, reason I relatively speaking, we're like of the, I don't know, we're kind of the newer generation, I guess, of CSATs and professionals. There's kind of this like 
older guard that is passing on part of the legacy. And they're often the ones who trained us, invited us graciously into the field, gave us a lot of those opportunities. And just, I don't think it's unique to this field alone. Um, just like is happening in other industries, there's this passing of the torch intergenerationally between like, from like uh, baby boomers who are, a lot of them are, you know, trans starting to transition out and Gen X is often in leadership positions and some millennials are moving into leadership positions within um, organizations. And so as this transition happens, one of the things that was cool about the conference is it hadn't happened in person because of COVID in a couple of years. So there was a lot of energy there. Um, a lot of people were eager to get back. And so some of the ideas like the workshop that, that I hosted was well attended because I think people are, um, you know, especially COVID, um, you know, forcing a lot of people like, you know, people who are like, yeah, I don't do the online thing. I don't do like, you know, you know, this kind of platform, you know, like it, it introduced, it forced people to be introduced to things that some people may have been really familiar with before, others not so much. And so that also brought a lot of stark attention to like, hey, there are huge benefits to technology and there's real challenges associated with access to technology. And thus to um, kind of uh, summarize the, uh, the workshop, it was um, how do we work with millennials and Gen Z whose profile, whose cultural profile, whose uh, preferences, whose um, relationship to technology is significantly different than, say, Gen X or baby boomers? Uh, even those, let's say, who you can have a baby boomer who's like a software developer who's been very tied into technology throughout their lives. And yet their relationship to it personally is often going to be pretty different than, say, someone who is someone who started using internet at age, I don't know, like nine, you know, with AOL dial up, but within a couple of years was on high speed internet and, uh, and their social circles, their friends were very tied into access to not just social media, but we would go online to find resources. And it's this integrated part of one's life and access eventually to mobile devices was pretty rapidly an important developmental part of that person's life and thus how do we work with that while not trying to um uh, because historically you know within the world of um, sex love pornography addiction there was a there was a hey like get off your devices get, you know someone's like get a flip phone um and that, that may seem extreme to some um or hey like you know, really curtail your access to internet and make things as analog as possible. And that recommendation often came from baby boomer and Gen X clinicians and people in recovery. And it felt like it didn't always fit for millennials and now even less so for Gen Z, because it was like, okay, but this comes with like a lot of drawbacks. Like this doesn't seem really, like we're losing a lot. And as we do this, and so I wanted to help people be able to like bridge that gap and be able to understand how important technology is to those generations. And yet, how can we develop a different kind of relationship to it instead of trying to amputate technology out of our lives and not have access to it? Mm -hmm. And there was a lot more, but on the tech side, that's part of what I was talking about. On the clinical side, there's a whole bunch of things that maybe is not applicable to this conversation. It's more mm -hmm. applicable to like 
clinicians pursuing certain avenues. So I won't touch on that so much unless you want me to. Yeah. I guess we'll see where we go, but yeah, yeah, no, I know. I appreciate the way that you articulate the the challenge and I, I, I appreciate, I perceive kind of a, a call for like more nuance or more, more complex conversations around it. Uh, so I, as you're talking, I mean, I definitely recognize, you know, parts of my own self, uh, that want to take a more stark approach to this. Um, like, yeah, like in, like in my, in, in my recovery story, there were a couple of years right at the start where like, we just like didn't have internet at our house and, and that was, that was a really helpful thing. And, and this was, I don't know, like 10, 12 years ago. And, you know, I mean, at that time, I mean, we had a situation where, I mean, we could, uh, you know, we could take our laptops, we could go get internet other places, but we were able to, you know, basically like not have internet at home. And, and that was cool. But, um, but even just looking at my life, like 10 years later, like with the different things that we've got going on and the different things, the different ways that I use the internet now for work, like, I don't know, I don't know that I could pull it off now. Uh, and, and I mean, I'm even the same person. So I, I, so I can see where these all or nothing really extreme scenarios. Um, I mean, they look heroic when someone pulls them off and I'm not going to say we shouldn't, I'm not, I'm not going to say nobody should do those, but, but I better hear what you're saying where they're just completely inaccessible for some people, or it would be like too much, too much to ask for, for a lot of people. Um, which might be a way of maybe, maybe something to highlight here too, is even this idea of like how, we, how we're conceiving of, of sobriety. Um, I, I think I, I perceive also within the recovery field, there has historically been a big push to say, so sobriety means abstinence and usually total abstinence, usually forever. And like in the case of like, you know, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamines, like that's not, a, that's not altogether unreasonable to expect. And that that's possible without really disrupting life. Uh, cause you don't need those things in your, in your life. But once you get into like, like the eating disorders, the intimacy, intimacy disorders, like someone's not going to abstain from intimacy for the rest of their life. Uh, even if they abstain from like a sexual relationship, like they're still going to want to like engage with people, have relationships, have some sort of touch. Uh, so, uh, yeah, these very strict abstinence models have their own limits as well. And so, yeah, it seems like all of those kind of collide together to say, well, so just what is it that we're expecting of our young people? And are we, are we expecting too much? That feels a little bit scary to ask because like, I also like don't want to like lower standards too much. But then again, it's like, well, if nobody can succeed at this thing, maybe we ought to revamp the whole thing anyway. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you're bringing up a lot of the things that obviously we've had conversations offline about this, and there's a number of things in which we're have this agreement on and have seen similar things within our personal experiences and within folks that we um, we work with. And uh, the the line that I like to use, right? Sometimes when we're talking about this, I'm not just talking about from like working with younger generations. I'm talking about working with anyone dealing with sexual compulsivity is, you know, we're not trying to become monks, right? We're trying to develop a healthy relationship. We're trying not, not trying to cut sexuality out of our lives altogether and amputate it. And, 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 and frankly, that's like a, you know, that, that framework itself, which some people may agree with that conceptually, but within the languaging, the teaching, some of the messaging that they picked up along the way, 
you know, people do pick up sometimes in our, you know, parts of culture, like, like sex is bad, you know, um, or sexuality is like, I think Dr. Patrick Carnes, who's one of, you know, the grandfather of sex addiction um, treatment work with, you know, would say like sex is dirty, save it for someone you love, you know, and, and uh, that's the, that was the, that was the messaging historically around it. And so, yes, I appreciate the, that difficulty of like, how do we find this middle ground without um, not completely lowering, not completely lowering the standards, not abandoning difficult choices that one has to make to change some things around. And, and, and perhaps the thing that may help with this is knowing that re recovery, just like us, go, it's in stages. What, what people decide to plug in and choose to do over a certain time, that's for a season. Just as you were telling your story there, that that internet thing, while a, a heftier uh, lift than what some may be able to or willing to do, that was for a season. Here you are, we're having this, you know, this uh, podcast on a virtual platform together with access to technology, and it's not the same as it was for you ten years ago. So it can evolve, and in not too long, and and I guess sometimes it's not so different from hey, when we choose to, people like to do things like Whole30 or a 90-day cut from something. They cut out sugar. And sometimes we're like, hey, it's everywhere. Like everyone's having it, blah, blah, blah. It's like you can temporarily do things that reveal um, your relationship to something and allow you to re-examine that and change it. That doesn't need to be a lifelong commitment. It's like, mm -hmm. I'm not cutting out sugar for the rest of my life. I'm cutting out for 90 days, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, when you look yeah. at, when you look at life as, uh, seasons as rhythms, uh, I know in my tradition, we talk about like, like fasting and feasting is, is happening mm -hmm. very much in a rhythm and, mm -hmm. you know, you know, fasting seasons are great. They're wonderful. They're necessary. They're healthy. They, they don't last forever and they shouldn't last forever because we need mm -hmm. to also enjoy life and, and things. So yeah, something like whole 30 or like going on a temporary diet, or like, if you're mm -hmm. going to say, Hey, yeah, I'm going to do an internet purge for a season of time. Uh, mm -hmm you know, that might be a good thing for a season. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, that would, that would be very difficult to sustain. And like, if you were going to try to sustain that, you'd better have like a really good reason for doing it, really good supports for it. And like other ways of accomplishing, uh, your, your connectivity needs and everything. Yes. Um, but Absolutely. so I'd love, so I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on, um, more of the sustainable practices. So, uh, so to make this a little bit more real, so, so, so there, let's take a, take a specific scenario, um, which I have people like this in my mm -hmm. caseload and my groups where they, they're wanting to do recovery from, from pornography, from, and it's especially pornography. Like sometimes there's like mm -hmm. the compulsive sexual behaviors, but it's more often like specifically pornography and like online mm -hmm. sexual behaviors. Um, but they work on the internet or they, they work online. And especially if they, they work from home and they're alone a lot of the day or they work like in an office, but are still alone most of the day. Uh, yeah. and it's a scenario where the community is somewhere else. Um, and the screen is their livelihood and they can't yeah. functionally not be on a screen, even though the screen is the medium by which they also act out. So yeah. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Um, talking about what would a healthy relationship with technology look like? What are some early steps a person could take that could also be sustainable? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, uh, I'd be happy to speak to that. One of the things that is just worth um, mentioning, you know, with the, the way in which um, part of my personal experience and also what I have been steeped in based on the program that I work in and also who I was trained by, the um, CSAT who uh, trained me. And, and, and so I, I obviously have a bias and an influence of the framework that I utilize. And um, you know, Begin Again Institute uses, and Boulder Recovery uses a, a, a the TINSA framework, a trauma-induced sex addiction framework. And, and not everyone has, um, not everyone who is, um, is compulsively um, utilizing sex or pornography has significant trauma. Like the example is some people uh, just were really exposed really, really early. Let's say, hey, like a seven-year-old because of their unfiltered access on their tablet starts being able to access and view um, internet pornography and happens to happen at a time when they're also moving a couple of times and there's this disruption and their brain literally develops with exposure to this highly stimulating, what we call a super stimulus and can develop a level of compulsivity without necessarily having the significant trauma to undergird it. Now, some people argue, hey, exposure to the stuff that's available on the internet at age six or seven is a trauma to the brain. It's kind of like a, some people uh, compare it to like a TBI, a traumatic brain injury of the brain is just not built to um, be exposed to not just the content, but the intensity of it. And so some people argue that, right? And I think reasonably so, but so not everyone has trauma work. So when we're talking about these practices, these practices around technology, um, I think it's really important to address those things. And I fundamentally believe that often for a lot of people, they have to look at what kinds of wounds, trauma is a tricky word for some people. And uh, sometimes trauma is not about what happened to you. Sometimes it's also what didn't happen to you. What did you miss out on? What? Um, and so people have to be looking at that trauma piece, I think, um, or really would benefit from it and looking at the behavioral piece of it of like, how am I changing my habits? How am I reevaluating my relationship to whatever, to technology? If I don't think, I think if they don't do that underlying work, they're doing themselves a disservice. I think they're trying to like just habitually change things and often they'll find themselves frustrated by uh, relapse and slips. And I think that can be discouraging. I'm saying that not just as a bias, I'm saying that because I don't wanna introduce behavioral interventions and miss out on that underlying piece. And then people might do the behavioral interventions and be like, this doesn't work. You know, it's like, well, it doesn't work by itself. Right. So I don't know if that's fair to say that, but I wanted to throw that out there. I think yeah. it's com completely fair to say there's probably very few things that work on their own without mm -hmm. incorporating the whole person in the, in the rest of life. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, even goes so far as to say something like, like spirituality, which is very yeah. important to me. Yeah. Like, you know, if all you do is like show up to church on Sunday and expect that to just like make your life like wonderful and holy, that's, that's not it. Cause that's, that's not the full life. That's not the full tradition. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well yeah. Yep. I, I was, I'm appreciating to, uh, calling attention to the spectrum of trauma or, Mm -hmm. all, all of the layers of what that is, uh, cause it's right. It's not just, you know, I was like physically assaulted or mm -hmm. went through this disaster, mm -hmm. but it can't, it can be some more subtle ongoing things. I know something like being, being bullied or 
you know, being a victim of like systemic racism. I mean, those are like mm -hmm. these ongoing, stressful, overwhelming things. But but you're right too that this corner of trauma that sometimes gets missed is the the neglect or the deficits neglect, or the yeah. you know, I was fed, I was clothed, I was never beaten, but mm -hmm. I never had anyone to, to talk to emotionally. Um, That's right. Uh, I'm I didn't get the emotional attachment, the secure attachment that I really needed. Right. And then, but, but I did get the super stimulus like early on. So like my attachment just got inverted in this bizarre totally. way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's the thing that people have a lot of hard time identifying is it's often those absence pieces that people have a hard time identifying as trauma and people go, Hey, like, I'm, you know, that's being dramatic, you know, that, person's parents got divorced and their dad was a violent alcoholic and or you know they went through hurricane katrina and i lived in the suburbs you know in ohio like what do i have to complain about and so it, it's that that dangerous game of comparing stuff and missing things like yeah like that neglect piece of hey i had a dad who came home and we were provided for and clothed but he was checked out a lot he was checked out and i felt like i couldn't connect with him other than when i performed Right. So things like that. So, yeah. And, and not to deviate too much on that tangent, but I did want to mention that piece. But um, looping back to your original question about the, the how to navigate the situation where someone works on a screen and is also their addiction exists um, on that screen. A lot of things are about falling forward and trial and error. Honestly, it's about discovering what is my relationship to this thing? What trips me up? But um, often it's helpful to turn towards others who've walked a part of this path. It could be a therapist or clinician. It could be someone who's in your, you know, um, church support group around addressing, you know, compulsive pornography use. Could be someone in your sex addiction therapy group. Could be someone in a, you know, mutual support group you go to, like a twelve-step meeting or a non-twelve-step meeting that that uh, addresses this and. Um, and, and, and a lot of people will share ideas of what helped them, of, hey, here's what I did. Um, here's what helped me. So, uh, so the person who works on a screen, you know, uh, in the world of psychology, you know, we have, we look at like kind of like the Pavlovian response. A lot of people know that, that, that story of Pavlov and his dogs, right, where he would like ring this bell and put food out and ring the bell. And the dog started to associate the sound of the bell with being fed and and then he would eventually just ring the bell and they would salivate and there was no food. And that, that conditioned response had developed. Well, we do that too, right? As human beings. And, and it could be as you know, simple as like someone, um, let's say someone scrolls through like social media and on social media, there's content that is like activating or triggering for them. And that stuff subtly, the ads, the pictures that are coming up, some of them sexualized, some of them not. Some of them are just like people looking attractive having fun which activates this feeling of like people are out there having fun and i'm missing out and as they're sitting there in that position let's say they're sitting on the toilet or something and they're just scrolling on their phone just that position of their body with the screen the light coming through their eyes that position just like pavlov's dogs starts to become one where your body's almost primed to get activated and maybe at that point they get up and go back to their computer and they're working but they're charged up and the moment the next stressful thing comes up, then that's their them going and viewing pornography. So it's about it's about switching those things up, uh, really being highly observant of what my patterns are, and starting to change those things and seeing where I still trip up. So 
in the case of the person who has to use a computer, well, it can be as it could be something like going and putting their computer in a physically visible location. Hey, I literally move my computer to the living room for a while or like a family room and my screen is turned so that if someone walks into the kitchen, they could see it. Or I go work out of a coffee shop or I go work out of a shared workspace, right? Um, or hey, I identify my high-risk times. Hey, my high-risk times are from noon to three. It's after lunch. Oh, what's happening after lunch? My blood sugar is dropping. Um, that early day momentum has kind of worn off. Like, I'm, hey, I'm going to start my day. Today's going to be a day I'm going to be sober. I'm not going to, whatever. And that's when they're susceptible. They know that. And, and how would they know that? They often do that again, trial and error. And they go back to their group and say what happened. And their therapist helps them break it down. There's, there's some tools that can help people break things down. Like some people call these like postmortem, um, dialectical behavioral therapy. DBT has this tool that I like to use called a behavior chain analysis, which helps you look at like, what are the thoughts, the feelings, the behaviors, the sensations, the vulnerability factors that brought me towards a certain behavior and what can I change? What were the missing links? And so they may uh, notice that for them, it could be about like, hey, not spending more than half an hour sitting down. It's getting up and getting some activity to get like to fight that blood sugar crash, um, you know, every five minutes as they work. It could also be that they they look at their nutritional habits, right? Maybe at lunch they you know they they eat a carb bomb at lunch and they have a soda and they're like, blood sugar is crashing. And so it's not just technology, but what's happening surrounding the technology. And uh, and and at noon, I know I'm like spitballing a bunch of ideas here. It could be like um, them texting someone who's a sub accountability partner or a sponsor and saying, Hey, it's noon. This is when I'm, I'm most susceptible. I'm going to be focused on this. I'm going to take breaks What you know, five minute walks. Mm -hmm. uh, when I'm, you know, a craving comes up, here's some tools that I'm going to use. I'm going to pause. I'm going to pray. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to like do these things. And, and I'll send you a thumbs up at the top of the hour, every hour. If you don't hear from me, you know, mm -hmm. between now and three, um, check in on me and I'll, and I'll call you at three for five minutes just to say, mm -hmm. Hey, I made it through, or I'll send you a text saying I made it through. So they, they bookend it. That's called bookending when you're in a high risk period and you utilize a certain tool to help you feel like you have intentionality and visibility. And so, yeah, yeah. I know that was like a torrent of ideas, but yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good torrent. And what I really appreciate about that is how we get to say, okay, so in just like the reality of things, the internet is our world right now mm -hmm. and for better, for better, for worse, it's here. And some people are just going to be on it, you know, where, you know, we're not going to necessarily quit our jobs, but with what mm -hmm. you were talking about, we do get to maybe recontextualize it. We mm -hmm. get to look at the patterns, look at the rituals and, uh, there's the whole other context that we get to work around. So I say, okay, so I'm going to come out of being like alone in my basement on the computer all day to now I'm out around windows, I'm eating decent food, I'm taking breaks, I'm connecting with people. And so I'm buffering this volatile thing as much as I can with all of these other ways, yeah. a lot of intentionality. Yes. Um, so there, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of room to play there. And and that feels good. And that also, I, I like the way that there's 
an ongoing like practice element to that. Like, like whatever you set up to do, it's not something that is you're done with at some point. It's like, okay, so like, as long as I have this job in this scenario, I need to plan for like, you know, 12 to three is my dead zone. Like I probably need to take a break around the time. And then maybe just need to like build my day around that. And, and that just needs to be a perpetual thing, which probably could be done in a lot of cases. So, so there, there are a lot of practical ideas and we could definitely say more. And like you said, you get around people who have done this, they can offer those practical ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I love that term, by the way, recontextualizing it because that's, in, in, in your, and I think you're, you're good at summarizing and also kind of encapsulating part of what I said, almost like you could you do this as a job, you know, oh like <laughs> listening to people and, <laughs> right, and reflecting to them, right? Uh, yeah. So absolutely. So yeah. Change. Um, recontextualizing how we utilize um, technology and in some cases right some folks who are in a place where i know this may seem extreme to some but it does happen where they're viewing let's say pornography six seven hours a day out of a work day and uh, they're not getting much done it's creating um, productivity issues they've had a performance improvement plan um, put in place it's kind of like their second strike on it through their employer and they're feeling pretty discouraged. And like, in some cases it's like, yeah, it, it can be as extreme as like, hey, like go into a different branch or division of your company that uh, results in you not sitting alone on a screen for as long or um, do another job, work another job for a while, right? Because if the reality is if some things have progressed to the level where they're really consuming a person's life, well, the it's either they sacrifice everything else or they sacrifice their part of their relationship technology and their career opportunities in the short term um, sometimes. But what they also have to realize is by not having something that is consistently consuming their mental, spiritual, emotional resources and not causing problems, they're going to make up that lost time later through potentiation of you know, their potential as a person is going to move forward. It's not going to be hampered. So it's like, yeah, sometimes mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, you do pause and take a side step in order to then take four steps forward a year and a half down the line or something. Mm -hmm. Right. So, mm -hmm. so all of that's possible. And it helps to remember that, um, you're always sacrificing something. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's a question of, is it an intentional sacrifice or not? Are you sacrificing the things really valuable to you or not? Uh, if I, allow my addiction to continue i'm sacrificing a lot of like really good things potentially if i want to pursue my recovery i probably have to sacrifice some comforts to get there so that's just like the nature of life uh we're we don't get to keep everything but we mm -hmm. have some agency in choosing where that sacrifice happens yes yeah yeah, yeah. and and real quick and as you were talking I think uh, we actually can learn a lot in the technology kind of based addictions world um, from the eating disorders world, right? In eating disorder treatment, people will typically, let's say someone uh, binges and purges, that's their cycle. Um, these individuals are not going in and being like, hey, I'm just like not going to eat and I'm going to be like fed the nutrients through a tube. That way I don't have to worry about it. They're interacting with this thing right from the get go. And so, so much of it is about changing the context of their mental framework as they approach a meal, their social setting as they eat, what kind of items are they consuming? Um, so it's, again, looking at the relationship around it rather than 
like having this like all in and all out relationship to food. Mm-hmm. And in that way, especially with sex and food, we're forced to interact with these processes and in some cases substances, right? Like they they have some of both in them. So, so there can be a lot learned there on uh, how to change what, what's going on in here as I'm engaging with this. And, and, and part of the reality is like, it can sometimes be not so much about like, hey, like, do I have access to a phone? Do I have access to a computer? It's, um, do I have boundaries around when I use my phone? Do I have boundaries of myself on when I use my computer? What settings I use my laptop in, right? So some people say like, I don't get on a screen after, um, you know, like 8.30 or nine o'clock. Um, as much as we believe we absolutely have to be on a screen outside of responding to a text or a call, there isn't anything after 9.30 that's like, hey, like I'm, wa-, you know, let's say they're watching, sitting out watching a show with their family or their partner or something. Like, oh, what was that actor's name? I forgot. Like, I got to go on IMDb and check. It's like, you don't. Yeah. You don't have to like, <laughs> there, there's almost nothing that has to be found out. And and that's where we can pause. And 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 that also goes beyond, I think, our sexual compulsivity where things like, you know, I've been guilty of this where I, I remember something and I'm like, I got to hop on my phone and I'm in the car. Like, I was like, I got to do this thing. And it's like this thing that I'm saying that I got to do, you know, a lot of the messaging on texting and driving is it can wait. And that is the reality. It can wait. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Just about everything in our normal people lives can wait mm-hmm. until morning or until we park. Yeah. 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 The, the other big thing that I wanted to, to get your thoughts on uh, has to do with values. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can talk about here's these really great behaviors and practices and rituals, and those are good and we should do them. Um, but that takes effort. And when mm-hmm. we invest effort in something, it, it's really vital to know, well, why are we doing this? And, mm-hmm. and this was another component that you'd mentioned in, in your workshop as, uh, you know, in some way, how do we, how do we work with younger people, especially to like identify values and then to live mm-hmm. by them? Um, yeah. a, a further observation I notice is, um, a lot of folks who don't have a tradition or maybe they don't have close connections to family or they, I know for, for a variety of reasons, just don't really have a clear sense of this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what's up and down. Um, and, and then we're, we were asking them to say, okay, now, you know, define sobriety, define healthy sexuality and then sustain it. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what, uh, yeah. h- how can we help our, our people here? As, as tied into, you know, this, te- this, uh, conversation on technology, and especially the relationship of younger generations with, um, technology. And, and when we talk about tech natives, we're talking about people who have access to effectively high speed internet based technology from from developmentally, like the earliest stages, like they don't really remember a world without it, right? Um, Gen Z are considered tech natives. Um, uh, Millennials are considered fully tech integrated, but Gen Z are tech natives. And so one of the things that technology can do is it, it can be used as a vehicle for connection, such as when people, you know, I mean, during COVID, Thank goodness for things like Zoom and FaceTime, which allowed people to Zoom with family and friends and feel some sense of, you know, connection and solidarity and one of the most socially isolating and connect- disconnecting times in world history, right? Um, 
And, and so it can facilitate connection. It can also facilitate disconnection. It's easy to go down the rabbit hole of, of, of like being sucked into creating a whole life that is about stimulation and keeping the world kind of blocked out. Um, and one of the things that happens when we're blocked out from others, um, values are very much often discovered in relationship to um, other people. Uh, when I say this, it's like from an attachment perspective, not to go like too deep into clinical, within attachment theory, when we have healthy attachment, typically around a caregiver or a, a parent or, you know, that we come into the world and we need that connection with someone who is uh, attuned to us and sync with us and our needs, attachment by that caregiver to that child, by being connected to, by being known by somebody else actually helps the, the infant know themselves. When we see our emotions, our sensations, our struggles, our smiles, our pains and hurts, uh, when I hurt, I see it on their face. It makes me, it makes my sense of me real to me because I'm seeing it mirrored in somebody. I am real, I am felt, I am picked up, and so people who don't have attachment often struggle to identify their needs and who they are. And often awareness of our needs and our ability to connect and attach to others is very tied into our ability to pick up our values. So there's kind of a bit of a ladder of things here that are um, sometimes not just prerequisites, but also ideas of other things that people can work on in being able to pick up their values. And so addressing your question directly around how do we um, help younger people discover their values? Well, values often are established through your community, like having a community around you, um, traditions like cultural traditions, uh, whether it be your uh, faith or religious community, whether it be your um, academic school community, um, your parents, your nuclear family, um, your friends, often it's the shared, there's some shared values that our culture has where we pick up some of them. And then from there, uh, we discover a lot of our values by going out into the world and having experiences and, um, and, and, and kind of figuring out at each kind of juncture point, nope, this is, this is what feels right to me. And so to me, like values are a little bit of that. I know it feels intangible. They're like our North Star or they are our, they're like a line that points me towards who I really am, how I, um, what, um, what I want from the world, what I want for myself, what I want for others. The thing that allows me to have that sense of like, ah, this is, this is what's right. And how, how do people figure that out? They go out and they have a relationship with a friend and uh, their their neighbor who's their who's their best friend and um and they um their neighbor um has something that they you know they they get a new a bike and they can't stop talking about their new bike and they get sick of hearing about this new bike and they go to their other friend and they go i'm i'm so sick of hearing about greg and his stupid new bike he thinks he's so cool and uh like he can't even write it right. And <laughs> as I do that, and as I see my friend respond to it, and then later my my friend Greg finds out about it and like 
And, and when he finds out about it, I feel this thing in my gut that goes, Ugh, right. Then I start to figure out that my, I value, I value loyalty and I value like not gossiping. So having integrity with my word, I figure that out through like kind of stepping in the mud. Mm -hmm. Right. But the prerequisite there is like often I'm having relationships with people and I'm, I'm, I'm more and more orienting. And I figure out that, Hey, when I have an opportunity to gossip and I don't, or when I have an opportunity to knock someone down a peg to try to maybe bring myself up or make myself feel better. And I don't that I on the inside feel much more aligned. And there's this sense of like, this is the right move for me. Like that, that is one of the, one of the ways intangibly that we like start to figure out values, but have other ideas for like how uh, people can, younger people can discover them, but I'll pause and kind of let you yeah. hop in here. I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. I, I do. I, I mean, I really love that having values coming out of relationships. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, a, a lot of the, the neuroscience and science points too, like we don't do well as individuals anyway mm-hmm. i mean we could mm-hmm. almost go so far as to say like like the true individual does like doesn't really exist just like the way mm-hmm. like like resonance and energies like really work out like what so so it makes a lot of sense that we'd need um well like the, the two main components i heard you emphasizing there are uh relationships you know community uh and struggles uh mm-hmm. you know when greg and goes and gossips about his friend there's this like conflict there there's this pain there's a struggle and mm-hmm. once you know it, uh, it's the difficult things in our lives that really show us who we are and, and what's important. So, so when yep. we avoid people and when we avoid suffering of any sort, we're also avoiding ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the moral of yep. the story is you should go to group. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Right. Uh, okay. Yes, you got it. Humans are not built for humans are not built for us. Uh, ultimately, a completely solitary lifestyle. I'm not talking about like people that being introverts or needing t- solitude, solitude and isolation are two different things. Very different. Maybe that's something you've talked about at some point or will, but um, yeah. And, and so uh, struggles and, and, and relationships, the other ways in which we can help people. Um, and, and these are ideas that like clinically um, can be incorporated, but it'd be things like putting together like a vision board, you know, mm. creating this image of like, you know, who, who, um, and, and it could be in life areas, right? It could be my vision board of what do I want for my relationships? It could be, what do I want for my career? What do I want for my family? What do I want for my, uh, for, uh, my sense of spirituality, let's say. And, and it could be a vision board for each of those areas, or it can be like a whole life kind of like do it, like each kind of corner is a different thing. And a vision board add that visual component and that creative component of like, this feels right. Because uh, because values are not a mathematical equation; they're a feel thing, right? So a vision board helps us to get a, a better sense of what those values are, and then from there, as and and I might not have those totally like set, like I for sure know, but it gives me something to move towards, and. As I move towards it, I can refine and get a better, like, nope, like I'm figuring out it's really more this thing than this thing. There's like two or three words that are similar, right? Um, uh, within values. Let me think of an example. It could be like uh, community, family, connection, 
okay, like what, which one? Mm. And as I go and interact with those things, like I learn and figure out that, you know, maybe someone figures out that, yeah, like their message around family was based on this family motto of like, blood comes first, you're loyal to the family, no matter what, we do not take our problems outside of here. And uh, like some kind of version of like Omerta is like in play for that family. And that person maybe tells you, I think, you know, I value family, but as they have these really complex, sometimes like not so healthy relationships with a bunch of their family members and they're struggling with it, what they find is, hey, they, you know, they go to 12 step meetings and they start building community there and they're highly connected and loyal and committed to those folks and they go to their group and that's the same thing and they find they're doing it in their therapy group and their 12-step group and their you know their meditation group and 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 they realize no it's actually more about community and connection for me that's where i feel a sense of family so that's more of my value rather than just you know like family is my highest value right so it's kind of figured out by trial and error and and um and 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 it's kind of what I tell younger people around, like, hey, they have questions on what should I do for my career, is I tell them, um, go out and find out what jobs you don't want to do, like, right. go work <laughs> some jobs and find out what you know. Maybe you work whatever, like you work as a cashier at Target, and you find out that you don't like counting money, but you like the part about meeting new people. You like talking to people. Oh, okay, I like social connection. Um, and I like being of service. Oh, like, so should I go into a people field that involves like a lot of accounting or should I go into something that has more connection and hospitality? Okay. I go into connection, hospitality field, like go work at a hotel. And I find out that, um, yeah, I, I really thrive in positions of this and that. And, and, and so you find out kind of what you don't want to do as you, um, kind of like it's almost like getting to a fork in the road hey which one of these do i want to take and i go over here okay that's not right i'm gonna take this next one mm -hmm. and it helps you finally get to that answer so it's an exploratory yeah. iterative process yeah very much so or recognizing too that i mean the the particular iteration of a value might change over time like, mm -hmm. like for me i mean i uh you know so i've, I've long time had this value of you know generically you know helping people uh, mm -hmm. you know, one point that looked like very, I, I wanted to be do like full-time youth ministry in an evangelical context. And then mm -hmm. like, a lot of stuff happened. <laughs> I'm no longer evangelical. And so now I'm doing, uh, now I do addictions counseling with adults. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's still helping people, but it's vastly different than what I thought I wanted to do, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, and there's potential future iterations too. I mean, I hope I someday have a farm and then, you know, it could look like, bringing food to people yeah so you know the which which is what i love about having uh, a clear value as opposed to just like here here's a milestone goal is you know i i hit the milestone or i don't hit the milestone and then i have to deal with the, the aftermath of that um, mm -hmm. but a value a value can show up in a variety of forms in a variety of contexts over time and it can stay with you you can stay mm -hmm. with it um, and you can approach it differently and you're still being congruent with yourself Right. Absolutely. Yes. And, 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 and looping it back to our conversation around technology earlier, you said we're always making a sacrifice. 
And um, if I pause and say, okay, like making this sacrifice or this choice is not super palatable for me, let's say like, I, I wanna be able to use my phone after 8.30. I wanna be able to use the internet. And that's hard for me to like give that up. There's a loss there, you know, like I have a sense that I'm gonna miss out on, you know, the things that are happening. A lot of people use their, you know, use their mobile devices and are posting stuff after 8.30. And I like to like watch, you know, whatever, like TikTok reels that are funny for my friends. and. And, and there is, I get it, there's a loss there. But if the person pauses and says, okay, if I have a better idea of what my values are, which choice is gonna take me closer to that? It helps us make decisions, value-based decisions, um, instead of like um, fear-based decisions or I don't, you know, FOMO, you know, FOMO-based decisions. So, uh, yes. And it gets more complicated that sometimes some decisions do have a value conflict, like two things you value are in com, but that's part of why people have friends and counselors and have religious or spiritual leaders or partners to turn towards, to help them kind of explore and talk that out and, and, and maybe find the reconciliation of that. Yeah. 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 No, I really love that. And, uh, I mean, Kind of, kind of real life example for me is, uh, you know, I really, I mean, I really, really love a good show and watching shows and like watching shows in the evening is like one, of, one thing that I really enjoy a lot. Uh, it's not a bad thing. I don't have any like legalistic rules against it, but, but I'm finding as I get older, I, I more value like being creative, like, mm -hmm. you know, writing stuff. Uh, and I'm even more value, you know, being, you know, present with, with, with family members and things. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's like you said, it's, it's not because I'm afraid of, you know, watching shows or because I need to legalistically like be averse to shows. It's more of like, mm -hmm. because I love this other thing more, I'm going to make the sacrifice. And at that point it doesn't feel like that. Well, sometimes it feels like a sacrifice, but it's, it's not a, it's not a miserable sacrifice because yeah. I know, I know what I'm about. I know what I'm reaching for. And, and it's, it's more, yeah, it's more based out of love than out of fear. And yes. that tends to be stronger in any case. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, I, I, I like that example. And then what I'm hearing is like, yeah, it, it affects kind of the, the feeling tone, the fuel source of where it, it, sometimes it can look like the same identical action, right. But done from a different place. And that's where sometimes people within their like recovery habits or things they take on, they may do things because it's like, you know, the right thing to do or what they read on a internet based, you know, um, they were on a subreddit for addressing pornography addiction. And people are like, here's kind of the thing, some of the things to do, or they read it in like a workbook or something, or their therapist told them and they're doing it because that's what you're supposed to do to like get out and get an A in recovery versus like doing it because I identified how it's aligned with my values and here's part of what I want. Here's how this gets me there can make all the difference um, in the world. And, and, and I don't want to simplify it, oversimplify it in that like as we venture further into like value work, not just those value conflicts, but, you know, for example, like, yeah, for example for my personal life is I value um, connection. Connection is in my top three values and connection to my family and the people I care about or are close to me is really important. And, uh, and yet 
you know, um, the reality is that in order to be able to provide financially, in order to be able to create opportunity for the future, let's say on being able to like, um, not just like, I'm, I'm not talking about professional financial opportunity, but rather to, um, support my, you know, community of recovery, be able to support, you know, friends and people I care about. I need to be away from the house. I need to, you know, I choose to give my time to other things, which keeps me away from my family. <laughs> right. So, so, um, sometimes like there's difficult decisions to be made, but if we have, our values kind of more somewhere in view, like I can access them, I can continue to orient towards them. And uh, um, it helps me make some of those small decisions and it helps me get back to why I'm doing this. And hey, like when the opportunity to work 45 hours becomes 55 hours and this great opportunity comes up at 55 hours to do 60 hours, I can pause and say, yes, being away from the house is important. And uh, this connection with my family is more important. And I don't want to completely sacrifice that for this thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great example. All things mm -hmm. in balance. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Speaking of values and valuing time, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. I will uh, call it there. Uh, this has been really great. And I think really practical, really useful. And I and really appreciate you bringing your, your perspectives and expertise. Sure. Uh, if a listener wanted to reach out to you and or Begin Again or its network of programs, um, where, where where can you be found on the internet? That wonderful, lovely internet. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Case in point, even help and support <laughs> is found through places like this. Um, yeah. Well, um, probably the easiest place, uh, just as most of us look, I mean, you can go look up Begin Again Institute on Google, and it's going to take you to our uh, website. Uh, the parent company is called Integrative Life Network. But uh, if you just go look up, look up Begin Again Institute, for some of your listeners, you know, who are within the um, uh, Christian faith community, Boulder Recovery is effectively, BAI is the secular version of Boulder Recovery, or rather, Boulder Recovery is the gospel-centered version of BAI. BAI is the original. And so um, uh, just Google it, you know, give it a goog, as some people say. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and finding me, um, my, uh, my practice, my, uh, my private practice. Actually, I don't have a website up for my private practice, in part because my main gig is at BAI. I didn't want to, like, have that grow like crazy. So uh, people can actually probably even like through BAI, if you reach out to them and be like, hey, I'm trying to get a hold of Saco, they'll put you in touch with me and they'll, they can put you through If someone happens to be in Colorado and wants, you know, hey, I don't want to do a two week program, but I want to work with someone individually around this stuff. And so those could be the places that I'm found. And I do have a profile on the Begin Again Institute website if you want to go check it out. Yeah. Cool. All cool. right. Yeah, I should check that out. That'd be good times. And we should all go to Colorado sometime anyway. It's really beautiful. So Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for having me. And I uh enjoyed our time together and uh, so much more to be said. And maybe um maybe we can do this again sometime in the future on a similar or other topic. Yeah. yeah. I would love I would love that so much. Thank you for joining me in today's conversation. 
My name is Reese Basimio. I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian and a clinical counselor with specialties in substance use, compulsive behaviors, sexuality, and trauma. You can reach me through newpatterncounseling.com. This episode was mastered by Breakfast Puppies. Theme music is by Titus Lockard. Please like, rate, review, and share this podcast from all your favorite platforms. Please also consider showing your support of this work through contributing dollars through the podcast page at patreon.com slash outer circle. Thank you and see you next time.